But Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the picture of marriage. What a beautiful picture of your union with us through Christ. So God, we pray right now, come show up, meet us, teach us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, feel free if you messed up with your chairs, feel free to put those back in place. My name is Brandon West. I am one of the pastors here at Salt Church. I used to be a super picky eater. Like I'm talking like, you know, food that's like shaped in smiley faces and things like that, okay? Winnie Hunting and I, like we know each other. We know each other's spirits, okay? But the problem with being a super picky eater and a choleric person, like with strong opinions and a strong personality, is like I'm going to wind up with some serious hot takes on food. Like follow me on, on Facebook for my 16 listed uh, force-ranked Mexican food joints in this city, okay? Like, like I have some hot takes on food. And for a while growing up, Planet Smoothie, like that was my jam, Okay. Now I'm more of like a chop smooth guy, okay, chop smooth, so find me there with some kiwi quencher. But for a while, Planet Smoothie was where my wife and I would go for smoothies. The problem for my wife and I, we like super different smoothies. So I'm, I'm all about that grape ape, yo, grape ape, okay, get some grape juice up in there, a little bit of like, uh, like, you know, some, some acidity. My wife, though, she's all about the, the Vinny Del Rocco. And for the most part, it's fine, except that it's hot garbage, okay? Because it's got some, some orange sherbet up in there, and like mangoes and stuff. And I'm like, oh. Well, we go once to Planet Smoothie, and I drop in my order. Comes out, Brandon, your order's up. Got my grape, babe. Mm. Oh. oh, I love this drink. This is why I love it so much. Oh, I'm having a great day right now. My wife, she gets her drink out. She's like, she's like babe, like, you, should, you should try mine. You should try my drink. I'm like, ah, all right, fine, I'll be loving. So I take her drink, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, stop, this, this is the one, I don't like this one at all. And she's like, well, let me try your drink. And she picks up my drink, and she drinks it. She's like, you are drinking my drink right now. You literally have my smoothie, and I have your smoothie. I was like, wait, wait, wait. I take back her smoothie, I'm drinking it. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, this thing's great. <laughs> this thing's great. Today we're going to talk about marriage. What I have found is that for me, most of my life growing up, I was drinking from cups of marriage that were not God's plan. I thought it was good. I thought this is what marriage is supposed to look like. God's going to change that in us today. For us, maybe some of those things that we're drinking from thinking, this is how it's supposed to be. Maybe, maybe you've had, maybe you've been drinking from some poor examples in life, okay? You grew up, people around you, your neighbors, your family, Maybe they were a poor example. You're thinking, oh, this is what marriage is supposed to look like, and it tastes so good, and it's not God's plan. Maybe some of you, okay, the media, okay, the bachelor is not helping make you a godly husband, okay, or a godly wife. The bachelor is not helping with that. Maybe for some of you guys, it's some broken relationships that you've been in the past. Uh, you've been through some really difficult relationships yourself. Maybe somebody in this church is like, I I've been through a bad marriage. And you're thinking, this is what it's supposed to look like. Maybe for some of you guys, this is a big one for me, you, you've been sipping on cups, just some bad teaching. Like you've read some books, you've listened to some sermons, and it's like, oh yeah, here's what marriage is like. You're like, I don't want anything to do with that. And I'm going to be honest, I, I think a lot of us as well, we, we, we just have some past trauma. 
Like maybe you were the one growing up, and it's like, oh yeah, your parents, they would, they would go into their room, they'd lock the door so you couldn't hear them while they yelled at one another, or, or worse. All of these things are changing the way that we think about marriage. They're the wrong planet smoothie cup. What's going to happen today is we're going to open up God's word, and God's word is going to give us a whole different picture for what marriage is supposed to look like. I would say, this is my, my hot take for today, I would say that there's actually no greater gospel picture of relationships lived out together than in marriage. Two people committed to honoring God in this relationship, and I'm so pumped for us to see this together in Ephesians 5. So let's go there together. Ephesians chapter 5, open with me to this passage. Ephesians chapter 5, we're actually going to pick up in verse 21 though. Verse 21 of Ephesians 5. In verse 21, it says this, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he would sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, and no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the reason that we picked up in verse 21 is that actually in verse 22 where this begins with wives, there's no verb in that, that sentence there. Wives, submit to your husbands. It's not there. It's actually drawing from that previous sentence on submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, which is really drawing in from two weeks ago, Ephesians 5.18, about being filled with the Spirit. Remember I said, hey, if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be singing, you're going to be making melody to the Lord, you're going to be giving thanks in your heart. And it also says, if you're doing that, you're also going to be submitting to one another. It's kind of a strange thing to add to the list. TBH, when this letter was written, women were treated horribly. Just one author would describe what it's like for a woman to live in the Roman Empire in this way. A girl was completely under her father's power. A wife was completely under her, her husband's power. She was his chattel, like his own property. Her life was one, one of legal incapacity which amounted to enslavement, while her status was described as imbecilitatis, which is where we get the word in English, imbecile. The Jews had a low view of women. The Roman Empire had a low view of women. And I'm just going to be honest, most of American history has had a low view of women. And because of the way that women have been treated throughout time, even the passage in front of us this morning has been used 
to emotionally abuse, professionally stifle, sociologically subordinate, physically exploit, and spiritually oppress women for centuries. We've been drinking from the wrong smoothie, thinking it's the right one. Submission is not a popular word in today's age. It didn't make it in the Barbie movie. But our job is not to find out, like, well, how do I take this word and figure out what it looks like in our context? Our job is actually to figure out how God has spoken across context, across time, across millennia, to instruct us today. And I know this is going to come off as a big statement, but I don't believe that there's a single ounce of oppression in these verses. This word in Greek that we're going to look at today, submission, it's two words in Greek. One that means under, hupo, and tasso, it means to appoint, to tie, to set, to arrange, to draw up, to station something underneath something else. Or maybe properly, to, to arrange something underneath God's plan. That's what this word means. Well, what does it look like in, in this passage here? Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to the Lord. Not, not to a man, not to a person. Not to a dude. To the Lord. That's where, out of reverence for the Lord, we submit. Importantly, this word submit, though, like that we're looking at here, it's not just for men. Like, the New Testament's full of this word. You, anybody in this room, just hear the word of the Lord here. Titus 3, remind them to submit themselves to authorities. That's you, me. 1 Peter 2, submit to every human authority because of the Lord's. 1 Peter 5, submit yourselves to elders. James 4, submit yourself to God, to arrange yourself, to set yourself under God and his plan. But here we get the clarity of wives submit to your own husband. Not to all men, not to all men, to your husband. Arrange yourself, order yourself under your husband. Verse 23, though, is some cultural gold for us, though. Take a look at verse 23. It says this, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Is Christ still the head of the church? Yes. Therefore, the husband is still the head of the wife. But what in the world does this headship mean and look like? God has created order. He's created order. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he's not a God of chaos, but a God of peace and of order. Romans 13, he's created authorities and governments and rulers and leaders. But within that created design then comes roles. And roles are not by nature oppressive. This is why if you, if you work for a good company right now, you don't feel like your role in your company is oppressive. Because when you are led by people who are saying, I care about you, I see you, I value you, you're like, man, lead on, lead on. Roles become oppressive when they limit freedom, they limit choice, they limit potential, and they're based on arbitrary, unfair, or discriminatory criteria. But this is precisely where Jesus starts like flipping the whole model on its head. Jesus gave women dignity in the Roman Empire. 
He had long, deep theological conversations with them in public. He taught them. He cared for them. He healed them. He invited them into his ministry, his kingdom ministry. He appeared to them after he was resurrected. Affirmed in all the scripture is the dignity of all people, the equality of all people before God. But here's an important point. Equal doesn't mean identical. Equal does not mean identical. Same dignity, different roles. We're to complement one another, not be one another. Submission honors God-created order. This is how I have made this. This is why we do this, male or female. In the context of marriage or not, submission honors God in our lives. We also see this in the church. Look at verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I'm just going to be honest. Like, as I've been prepping for this message for months, like, there have been portions of this where I'm just like, I'm triggered. What I'm saying to you right now is not the planet smoothie cup that my wife and I were drinking from when we got married. Because of poor examples and bad teaching and poor books that we were reading, the picture being painted for my wife and I at the beginning of marriage was the domineering husband and the doormat wife. I thought that leadership meant me telling my wife what to do. And she thought that that leadership for her meant being told what to do. It wasn't God's way. I was drinking from the wrong smoothie cup. Men, biggest lesson learned here for this section based on this. Verses 22, 23, and 24 are written to women, not men. So this is not like some trump card that you play in your marriage. Check this quote out here. Submission is not a command for the husband to enforce. There's never even a hint of such idea in the scriptures where a man, through conniving, brute force, manipulation, or mind control, can bring his wife into submission. It's not something that the husband demands of his wife. Submit to me. Any more than she demands that he love her. It is not the husband's job to ensure that his wife submits to him. It's the wife's job to ensure that she submits to him. If you are pulling this out in your marriage, it is not a sign of your effective, head-like, strong leadership. It is a sign of your weak and impotent leadership in your home. Because we've been drinking from the wrong wells, like I am quite aware that there are people in this audience who would be afraid to hear a message like this. There, there, there's some women in this, like every time I say the word submit, you're like, and, and I know why. Because I know that, that on the one hand, they could be concerned, like I'm going to be abused. I'm going to be exploited. Or you're so afraid because you have to go home and you're like, but my husband's not leading well. They're either maybe so passive, so lazy, that, that these women are, are begging that their husband would lead and do something. 
while they're watching another game of football. Or, on the other hand, they're so controlling, they're so domineering, they're so harsh. We see it here in verse 23. Christ is the head of the church, yes, but he's also its savior. He's also the savior. The picture is so different. It's culture-defying. It's a different smoothie to drink from. It's care, not control. It's responsibility, not ruling. It's cherishing, not crushing. It's sanctifying, not stifling. It's serving, not subjugating. God-honoring submission is a part of a flourishing marriage, just like it's part of a flourishing church, just like it's a part of a flourishing trinity where Jesus submits himself to the Father. But check out this quote here. This, This is really helpful for me to see. Long quote. Marcus Barth says this on Ephesians. Even Jesus Christ himself demonstrates rather than loses his dignity by his subordination to the Father. When a person is voluntarily amenable to another or gives way to him, places himself at his service, he shows greater dignity and greater freedom than an individual who couldn't bear to be someone's helper or a partner to anyone but himself. Ephesians 5 supports anything but blind obedience or the breaking of a wife's will. Rather, this chapter shows that in the realm of the crucified servant Messiah, the subjects respect an order of freedom and equality in which one person assists another, seemingly by renouncing rights possessed, actually in exercising the right to imitate the Messiah himself. A greater, wiser, more positive description of marriage has never been found in all of Christian literature. Submission in marriage, it's not some blind obedience. It's it's never a call to endure abuse. Like, if that's you, you find us. We will help you. We will come along. That is never God's plan. It's not full obedience. Husbands only have like a little bit of delegated authority from the Lord. Submission is is a voluntary ordering of a wife under her husband. Within the context of marriage alone, to show respect to her husband, she entrusts herself to him. And in so doing, she honors the Lord, the created order, and she demonstrates the gospel in her joyful yielding. That's when my wife comes to me and she says, look, you've drawn me out. You asked me questions about this. We've gone at it. We've prayed together. I trust you. Lead on. And then when I make the decision, even if she disagrees with me, she supports me. She prays for me. She doesn't critique me. She doesn't later say, see, I told you so. She doesn't make me look like a fool behind my back. She walks next to me as God's plan for us unfolds. But this is where it switches. All right, dudes, strap on your seatbelt. Here we go. Verse 25. Men, look at this verse here. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This next passage has five verbs that are going to unpack what it looks like for Christ to love the church. They're so comprehensive a picture of love that some commentators think that these couple verses here are like from some early Christian liturgy or like a hymn. 
as I've sat with this over the past few months, the, the more I've been convinced, never has there ever been a more complete, more compelling, more inspiring picture of what love looks like than this, and never a more weighty calling. Husbands, your model for how to love is Jesus Christ, God himself. Has any other call ever been given on your life that's higher than this? Love like God. How did Jesus love the church? He died. Jordan said if there was like a husband's business card and it had like one word to describe their duty, all it would say is die. One, one woman in this church, she was, like, she was like, all I have to do is submit to authority. My husband's got the hard job. He's got to die. Over and over again. How did Christ love the church? He sacrificed everything for her. He gave up himself. He emptied himself. I've been, gro- I've been relearning this lesson this year. We were on a date a couple months ago, and I just asked my wife, like, hey, like, what's a way that I, I can love you better? She goes, could you just, like, take some L's? Could you just, like, when, when all the options are on the table, like, maybe we don't always have to do the one that, like, makes you the most comfortable. Maybe we don't have to choose the one that you would like to do the most. And what hits so hard about this is like that's what Christ did. He didn't take up, he, he, he took, Christ took up a washcloth, not a crown. Christ took up a cross, not comfort. Jesus took up pain, not privilege. Don't choose your way over and over I'm relearning this in my activities, in the fun things that we do, in the vacations that we take, in the restaurants we choose, in the preferences that I have. Husbands, your children, if you have children, your children need to see you do this over and over. They need to see you die daily. They need to see this gentle, caring, others-focused leadership in you. How did Christ love the church? He loved the church as its servant. The the smoothie of the Roman Empire was authority, dominance, power. And Jesus is like, you want to be the the greatest? Be the least. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I had to do this activity with Shelly earlier this year. I had to ask her two questions. I had to bring home two questions. I had to ask her to her. First question was, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being, are you Satan? And 10 being, I'm confused, you, are you Jesus? On a scale of 1 to 10, how am I doing, not at serving our family, how am I doing at serving you? She goes, hmm, 4. I'm like, I'm like, babe, like on a scale of like 1 to 10, like that's more like Satan than it is like Jesus. Here's the lie. Oh, Genesis. She was created to be the helper. She was created to be the help. You're my helper. 
Two to three times in the Old Testament, the word helper is used to describe a woman. Sixteen times, at least, it's used to describe God. The, the lie. Oh, she's supposed to be my helper. No, no, no. Paul's writing into the church of Ephesus, and he's like, you husbands, you go serve. You go die. You go sacrifice. You're the servant. Love like God. How did Christ love the church? He loved the church without reciprocation, without any promise that it was going to come back to him. Church, you, marriage, outside of marriage, you are never more like God than when you love someone who's not loving you in return. You're never more like God than when you love in that way. We're called to submit to our husbands and to love our wives as Christ loved the church because that honors Jesus. That's our motive. And this is important because what happens when you're like, well, fine, I'll do it. I'll start submitting. Well, fine, I'll start loving. And they don't do it in return. What then? What then when you feel like you've poured yourself out, you're a 10 out of 10, you're given 100%, and you don't feel like it's being returned? What then? Two options. Throw in the towel, give up, or be faithful. And keep loving like Jesus. Keep submitting. Keep honoring. Keep respecting. Because that honors God. That's our motive in marriage. How did Christ love the church? He sat silently while he was being accused. He loved her patiently, kindly, compassionately, understandingly, gently. He sought her out. When there was conflict... He was the one who stepped up and sought the reconciliation. Like, in marriage, men, you don't have an option. You've got to go first. When there's conflict, and you're in one room, and she's in another, and you don't really want to talk to each other right now, you tried and it didn't go well, you're the one to seek out reconciliation, to seek peace with the other one, to get up, bow your head, walk in your room, and go, I was wrong. That's the only option for us as men. But here's what breaks my heart. A man who would say, I don't even know how I can do that anymore because I, I just don't love her anymore. Look at this quote. It's from Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage. One of the cruelest and most self-condemning remarks I've ever heard is the one that men often use when they leave their wives for another woman and they say, the truth is, I've never loved you. This is meant to be an attack on the wife, like saying, the truth is, I've never found you to be lovable. But put it in a Christian context, it's a confession of that man's utter failure to be a Christian. If he hasn't loved his wife, it is not his wife's fault, but his Jesus calls us to love even the unlovable, even our enemies. So a man who says, I've never loved you, is a man who is saying, essentially, I've never acted like a Christian. Men, you don't have a choice. Love your wife as Christ loved the church, even when you don't feel like it. Why did he come? Why did he give himself up? Why did Christ do this? Look at verse 26. 
he came that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. Classic question for premarital counseling. What does it look like for me to lead my family spiritually? What does it look like for me to be a spiritual leader in my marriage? Here's a real simple definition. You pursuing your wife's holiness. Go first with her. You be the first one to ask the questions. You be the first one to share about what God's teaching you. You be the first one to pray. Draw your wife out. Lead out on date nights. Okay, young men, like, women want to be led. It's not because they couldn't figure out a date night themselves, but for you to walk in and go, hey, I have this plan, and then afterwards we're going to do this, and I have this cool question we're going to ask along the way. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, you. Why? Because leadership is an expression of care. Every time that you lead out, you are expressing the intentional, purposeful, forward pursuit of the Father for his people. And in marriage, I heard Ed Cole say this once. He said, a man doesn't own his marriage. He's only the steward of his wife's love. A man does not own his marriage. He's only the steward of his wife's love. How are you doing, married person, at stewarding your wife's love? And Paul paints this crazy cool picture here of what this looks like when Christ takes his bride that he's sanctified and he hands it back to the Father. And I would just ask you this, like, picture that moment, husbands, when you'll stand there and you'll present back your bride, God's daughter. And in that moment, you'll say, Here's how I've loved your daughter, Lord. Here's how I've led her with holiness. Here's how I've nurtured her faith. Here's how I've prayed with and for her. Here's how I've died over and over for her. Here's how I've honored and respected her submission of me. Here's how I've cared for her body. Here's how I've walked beside her in every trial. Here's how I've stewarded her love. Here's how I showed you to her. Men, we're to set the pace. We're the ones to set the pace in the home. We're the ones to say, here's how often we're going to go to church. Here's how often we're going to get in connection groups. Here's how much TV we're going to watch so that we can spend time investing in people, discipling, evangelizing the lost, inviting people into our home. Here's how much money I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up so that we can give generously to the people God's called us to invest in. Men, you are to go first. And that leadership is an expression of care for your wife. It's a model of God's grace. It's a model of the gospel of marriage. And, and this passage here gives us two really beautiful words to help see what this looks like. Look at verse 28. It says this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives like their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, but no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and he cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Two beautiful words, nourish and cherish. Nourish is actually the same word used in chapter 6 when referring to children, like, like to, to feed them, to nurture them. 
Let me just ask you this, men. Like, is your wife more nourished by your leadership? Or has she been neglected under your leadership? I remember when we, I first started my company 10 years ago. The first year, I'm like trying to hire people. This is great. I'm like, I want to build a culture. I want to build a team. So I start coming up with all these cool ideas like, oh, here's this fun party we're going to have and this fun event that we're going to do and ordered some food and did this thing and blah, 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 blah. And I just remember coming home with my wife, telling her these stories of what we're doing in the office. And I remember when she was in the kitchen and she just turned to me and she said, that's great. When are you going to do something like that for us? Are you doing a great job of like hosting people and degroup and having people over and coming up with creative ideas for your team or your, your company or the people you work with, but it's been a long time since the people who are closest in your life have gotten some of that? Women, I can almost guarantee you that the men who are best to marry on that campus probably play the least amount of video games. probably the ones that are pursuing Christ instead. And we all spend our, our time in different ways. We waste our time on different things. Like, I get it. But I'm, I'm just saying what I've learned in my life, being married at a young age, is that the men who you want to marry, they're not the ones who are most eager to level up on their Fortnite skills while you've been waiting for the fourth night wondering if you're going to talk to them before 1 a.m. Guys, like, it's not worth it. <laughs> not worth it it's selfish behavior like pornography that makes us think that like life's about me my time's about me my happiness this marriage is about me and my no marriage is about giving marriage is about nurturing nourishing cherishing another person paul said he would count all things as worthless compared to knowing christ that he would be just said that he would know a little bit more of this gospel. It's not worth it. Make sacrifices. The other word that we, we use here, nourish, but then also cherish. Cherish. In, in Greek, it can also be used like to, to warm something. Does your wife feel nourished and warmed by your presence? My, my wife right now, Shelly, she's reading a book by Jonathan Edwards called. It's his biography. It's Jonathan Edwards' biography. It's called Marriage to a Difficult Man. <laughs> he has friends, you know. She's asking for a friend, asking for a friend. Is your wife, she, she eager to see you when you get home? She eager because you're a warming presence to her. Is your wife walking on eggshells around you? Have you created an environment in which your wife can bring you hard, critical feedback so that you can grow? Your wife feels safe and secure and cherished and nourished when you do so. I have my wife rate our marriage once a month, just to kind of take a barometer test once a month. So I went to her on Wednesday, happened to be this Wednesday, and I said, hey, it's that time of the month. And she's like, you want your cycle? I was like, I was like no, 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 you got you to rate our marriage, man. You got to rate our marriage. And she's like, okay. I think, it's a, I think it's a 10 for the second month in a row. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was a horrible husband last week. I was sick for five days. I was laid out on the couch. I was a worthless human being for almost an entire week. She goes, yeah, yeah, but, but when I came to you, 
and I said, hey, you're kind of being a sticky, sticky grump grumps. She's like, when I pointed that out, you got better. Your spouse doesn't want to know, like, you're perfect. They know you ain't. They know you ain't perfect. They don't want to know that you're perfect. All they want to know is you're going to take the next step with Jesus. Will you, are you excited about that? Is that where you want to go? Is that who you are? And when you create that environment in your home, your wife feels secure. She feels Paul then ends this section here with Genesis chapter 2. He quotes it in verse 31 when he says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And you're thinking, weren't we talking about marriage? What are you talking about? We're talking about Christ and the church. This is the reminder, guys. Your marriage is a mega platform for the gospel, for showing Jesus' love to another person. And then he ends the whole section with this verse in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Shelly and I were married when we were 19 years old. We were 19 years old. We didn't know what we were doing, you know? It's like first year of marriage, I was like, this is great. My wife knew that the the truth, though. We were broken. Our marriage was broken. We needed counseling. We needed discipleship. And I went eagerly. I want to honor the Lord in marriage. Help me figure out how to do this. And I just remember sitting across the table with my wife. She's in tears. She's crying. It's me, her, and this couple. And I'll never forget when she just said, but how do I respect a man who's not respectable? I was 19 years old getting straight A's at UF without having to study, sitting up playing video games, binge watching TV shows, didn't have a job, and I'm turning to my wife, and I'm like, well, why don't you respect me? Then you want your wife to respect you? Be a respectable man. You want your wife to respect you? Be a respectable man. The challenge for women, though, in this passage is There's nothing in here that says respect him when he's respectable. Love her when she's lovable. This is why marriage is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. What's the best metaphor that we could give for the gospel? Is it the the, the three circles? Is it the bridge diagram? It's marriage. When two people, undeserving, choose to give to one another what the other one has not earned and says, I'm in it, even if it's unreciprocated, Because that's what Jesus did for me. What glory that brings to the Lord. Submission, this call to submission, this call to sacrificial love, it doesn't answer all questions in marriage. There's still a lot of questions. Who manages the finances? How much time should we be, how many times should we be intimate each week? Who's going to be responsible for each chore around the house? When should we try and get pregnant? Submission and love doesn't answer those questions, but it gives us the tools, the context that God will bless as we seek him and one another. As we figure those things out, though, here's God's plan. Here's God's vision for marriage. A woman who submits herself out of reverence for the Lord, not men. A woman who respects her husband's leadership, not just when he's doing an equally good job of filling up her love tank, 
A woman who makes it a joy for her husband to lead and her family in every way that she can. And a woman who satisfies herself with the goodness of the Lord. For a man, the vision from the Lord. One who sees that his best model for domestic love is no less than God himself. A man who makes it a joy for his wife to submit to him through sacrificial, gentle, and care-centered leadership. A man who sees that the highest value that he could offer his wife and his family is to be completely sold out for Jesus and daily to take his next step with God. And a man who satisfies himself with the goodness of the Lord. For college students, the best thing that you can do to prepare for marriage Get close to Jesus. Instead of dreaming about the future spouse that you want to marry, start becoming the future spouse that God wants to marry. Are you concerned? If you don't have any good examples, you're like, I've been sipping from all of these cups for my whole life. Jesus is your example. Get around people in this church, couples in this church. Invite a married couple into your D group. Invite one out to dinner. Start spending time with them. We were 19. We had no idea. That's what we started doing. We just started hanging out with godly couples and and saying, teach us. Married couples, the temptation is to walk away from a message like this and be like, well, I'm not going to do that because you aren't doing fill in the blank. Listen, the call in every argument is, what am I doing wrong? At the end of every conflict in your life, the question you ask is, What am I doing wrong? What can I do different? The purpose of marriage is to make you holy, and it will do that, but it will try you as you lean into him. But I would also say, like, there are people in this room who are like, my marriage is so broken. I don't, we've been, we've been scoring fours for years. You're thinking, well, at least we didn't get divorced. That's not God's plan for you. That's not God's plan for you. God has a bigger picture. And so I'm going to end with this story. This is a story of one of our members in this church who was willing to raise their hand and say, hey, look, this is what this has looked like for us. Be encouraged. Gwen Nelson writes this. Our marriage started out rough. I didn't know how to be a godly wife, and Corwin didn't know how to be a godly husband. Corwin was passive and selfish, which wasn't making him a strong leader. And I remember telling my mentor, I'll submit to, I'll respect Corwin when he deserves it. I now wish that she would have set me straight. Eventually, God convicted my heart that I needed to submit to Corwin as I need to submit to the Lord. And he clearly showed me through his word that Corwin didn't need to deserve it, but that I honor God when I submit and respect Corwin as I live my life as his wife. And it was this, me changing my posture towards Corwin. There's the key idea. Me changing my posture towards Corwin that softened Corwin's heart to God. This was the beginning of the turning point in our marriage when God saved Corwin and our marriage. Guys, marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Even in our brokenness, marriage is a living gospel to us. Let's give it out to a dying world. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. 
that according to the riches of his glory, he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you'd be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask, all we could think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in marriage and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of a marriage lived out in full surrender for you. Apart from you, we are and can do nothing. Come and meet us now, Lord, we pray in your name.